In this episode, we have a very special guest, Sergeant Tom Datro. I had an opportunity to meet and spend a week with uh, Tom Datro at a training down in Southern California. And he works in the training division of one of the West Coast's largest police agencies. Well, Tom also has his own podcast, Policing in America. But rather than just have him discuss one topic, I just asked him to talk about what was on his heart and the things that he's been working on with his organization. So we covered de-escalation, what's wrong with the culture in law enforcement, specifically when and how should we let people make mistakes. But I took a lot from my conversation with Tom. He's a very interesting person. He's very intelligent and he has a little bit different perspective than a lot of folks and I enjoy that. So here we go with my conversation with Sergeant Tom Datro from the Policing in America podcast. I hope you enjoy the show. So Tom, right before we hit record, you and I were talking about the different training trends as you're involved in training in your uh, department. And we talked about all this de-escalation talk. And uh, I was blessed to steal a bunch of stuff from Field Command that Sid, Odie, and Tim wrote about the basic elements of tactics. And anyone who's attended a Cato team leader or commander course, even our critical uh, incident leadership course, as well as uh, management school, should have seen some version of uh, this diagram. So I want to share it with you and get your thoughts on it, especially as we talk a lot about de-escalation and moving forward. So when we talk about de-escalation, we talk about taking action to stabilize the situation and reduce the immediacy of the threat so that more time, options, and resources are available to resolve the situation. The goal of de-escalation is to gain voluntary compliance of the subject when feasible and thereby reduce or eliminate the necessity to use physical force. Definition goes on, talks about that de-escalation may take the form of scene management, team tactics, and or individual engagement. Even when individual engagement is not feasible, de-escalation techniques, including scene management, team tactics, such as time, distance, and shielding, should still be used unless doing so would create undue risk of harm to any person due to the exigency threat of a situation. De-escalation tactics and techniques are actions used by officers when safe and feasible without compromising law enforcement priorities that seek to minimize the likelihood of the need to use force during an incident and increase the likelihood of voluntary compliance. So when you and I were talking about different forms of de-escalation training, I brought up the elements of tactics and how we constantly have to seek to place our adversary, the bad guy, at a position of disadvantage and place our people or ourselves at a position of advantage. My argument is the only two things we can do to manipulate that during the event is time and terrain. So uh, you and I have different roles in our organizations, but we all have the responsibility to provide some form of training, experience, and equipment to increase our officers' capabilities. And our adversary also has those and when we talk about time, that's initiative, the ability to carry through, tempo is how fast we can do it, and density 
density is how many of those things we can do at the same time. Think about divided attention, breaking the OODA loop, getting in your adversary's OODA loop, changing it from a responding or reacting to having the suspect respond to you. And then we talk about terrain. That's your observations, fields of fire, cover concealment, obstacles, avenues of approach and escape. So I really like this handout. I kind of wanted to show it to you and get your feedback and thoughts. But I know you, and my guess is you're going to talk about the culture of law enforcement training and some of the points of view that we all agree with, but then we kind of forget the longer we're in this job and about leadership and allowing um, those people to make mistakes. So I want to get your thoughts on that. What do you think? So there's there so many things about this that I like. And, and one, it's detailed. And oftentimes I hear people in positions of uh, influence and authority. I, I have a hard time right now saying leaders in policing because I feel like there's such a void of that. But, but positions of authority, management, and whatnot. And this is very at first glance, glossing over this, it's it's a high level thinking. You you have to think about this. And I, what I often hear is cops don't want this. This is too much for cops. They're going to see this and be like, whatever. But the more I get into in-depth topics, I feel that cops say, oh, that's kind of interesting. And yeah, you got to get some inertia and you got to get some momentum of the thought process. But like what you did, you gave an example and you attached it and you gave an example. So you start opening their brain. I, I truly, and I would love for you to teach this with us. Here is my, my question or my concern. We seem to tell officers, we want you to be creative and want you to be critical thinkers. But then anytime an officer deviates from some sort of policy or procedure, it is often met with punitive responses because it didn't work. But the only way to develop these critical thinking skills for somebody to cut an extension cord and loop it on a door and sort of lock it. There's no policy for this. There's no procedure. But some people would think if that didn't work, well, now you've damaged their property or you've been, you, you, for whatever reason, we don't know what we don't know. So this goes sideways. Instead of somebody saying, hey, I see what your thought process was. Good idea. It didn't work out for whatever reason, but I like the fact that you're trying to work this problem. It seems like we just, the proverbial slap on the wrist or spank or, you know, get hemmed up. Uh, it seems to happen. And Agreed. We, we need to either we're an innovative learning profession. If we're going to call ourselves professional, well, then we need to accept the fact and we need we need true leaders to absorb some of that risk when things don't play out the same way. And, you know, do you know that case in California that's being adjudicated right now with necessary deadly force? I think that goes to that, that bill. It's an officer. He's in like a Walmart and there's yeah, a young Sam Andrew. Okay. He's got the baseball bat. Like part of me sees the shopping carts around that, that, you know, cause you could see your environment. And I thought, man, if I was there, I hope I'd be able to grab a shopping cart and just kind of hold it between me and this, this person, I could shift the shopping cart and then I had cops say, oh, that's going to look great. So that he swings the bat while you're holding the cart. But it's like they immediately poo-poo the idea of, look, and, and it, it, I, I made, it validated me because you said terrain. And I thought, I'm now putting an obstacle. I'm using the terrain to my advantage. Can I run the shopping cart and push this person back? Can I box them in? 
And but we're we we want cops to do it, but then when they do it and it doesn't work, we discourage it, which then further stymies that critical thinking, which you need for that diagram you have. Yeah, and I think that I think you speak to two problems. One, uh, we've done a poor job as a profession of teaching principle-based decision making. It's all procedures. And yes. and two, we suffer just like society does right now in in value signaling. Yes. So so you're at any level at any rank, but obviously the higher rank you go, the more challenging it is. Some some guy on a weekend will deal with a problem and then Monday becomes a complaint to somebody in the administration who is overworked and uh, working 50 hours a week trying to put all these fires out. And this is just another fire that he has to put out. So what do I do to say, I put this out? Well, I'm going to give this guy a written reprimand or doc counseling or make a policy or, and, and I move on with my day. And the bigger your organization is, the more bureaucratic it becomes and the more you have these policies that actually don't affect change, don't really protect anything, but they're a band-aid on a bigger problem. And if you look at it from a state or national level, that's why we're at where we're at. As a profession, we've done a poor job of teaching critical decision-making, mm. principle-based decisions. With our limited budgets, limited people, we teach procedures. And procedures are easy, but you, you don't understand the why then you're, you're going to jam your solution into these other problems. And, and that's when you look at SWAT team disbanded or you look at these different things, it, it's because we jammed the wrong solution into the problem. And generally speaking, I would argue it's our fault as leaders in our profession because we didn't give you a good ruler. So yeah. you're, you're only, if, you know, if all you have is a hammer, then everything's a nail. Yeah. And, Exactly. And you have to have this multi, multi-pronged approach to solving these solutions. And our internal, we're, we're reacting, not responding, but yet we expect our officers to respond and not react. But the message we're sending them is, this is how you uh, don't get in trouble. This is how you get promoted. This is Nobody seems to look at these decisions that we try to make. And, and, and then give people grace when they do it. Marcus, right. when, when we look at the whole Floyd incident, and I know this has been belabored and, and beaten, but when I show the video and I show it to the young officers and you could hear the young officers around Chauvin saying, uh, maybe, maybe we should turn them over, you know, positional asphyxiation. And every single person completely understands the position that young officers in because of a cultural mechanism that is incredibly powerful that inhibits what you say, principle-based decision. And they're like, hey, process, procedure, don't question your TO. Like that is more important. And it's clearly been beaten into agencies across the nation mm -hmm. for other officers to say, I don't know if I would have been able to pull him off. Sure, in hindsight, we say, oh, I'm going to grab him off. But when you're in that moment, we know the, the, the brain inhibitors that kick in and the pressure to overcome that is in it's almost insurmountable, but what Which do we got to do? Because we, we think that that's a police problem. That's uh -huh. a human problem. It's a human problem. That affects every organization in every profession, in every job, every career that there is. It just happens mm -hmm. to be ours uses force. So it gets on TV 
but it's yeah. the same problem. It's the same problem in Congress. It's the same problem in the Senate. It's the same problem in the state legislature. It's yeah. all the same. But the art of leadership is that, right? The art of leadership is I'm going to give you direction. I want your input. But then at some point, this is an interesting thing, managing a, a collateral SWAT team in a small to mid-sized agency that I'm at compared to maybe your agency is, hey, the beautiful thing, the reason why I love SWAT is everybody's measured the same standard. You don't get a pass or a note because you're having a bad day that day. You have to meet these qualifications, hold one another up. But people forget that we all have strengths and weaknesses. And right. the people I grew up on my team with know my strengths and weaknesses. And when I'm weak, they're going to come and help me because they know, hey, this is something he's not good at. I'm good at it and vice versa. Yeah. Right. And we develop our niches. Yeah. But as a team, we become cohesive. In normal patrol work, it's very hard to accomplish that. My team, mm -hmm. we're rotating my patrol teams every six months. I'm not going to build a cohesive team in six months. Right. right? And, and the larger your organization, the harder that is. And the reason why I think that translates to what we're talking about, that's the art of leadership, right? Like, hey, I want everyone's input. I'm going to give you the direction based upon the parameters. But at some point, we got to stop taking your ideas and we got to move forward. But at yes. the same time, don't be a bunch of lemmings and let, let me lead you guys off this cliff. Like if I'm missing something, you got to tell me. Yes. That, that's where I think the, there is a pilot who, who's going to be on a podcast. Uh, he talks about how the aviation industry was very much like policing or like a surgery room, that hierarchy. And when you're the captain of that plane, you know, the power that comes with that and what has made, what has made aviation so safe despite the innumerable like moving parts that you know have this aircraft whipping through the air and all these planes moving at 500 miles an hour uh it, it, what has made that such a safe profession beyond technology is the culture of the obligation to challenge you have an obligation mm -hmm. and it, and it's expected and the captain doesn't say don't you don't talk to me that way but in our profession the obligation to challenge is gosh, we rely so much on that hierarchy. And like you said, there's a time when you say, okay, I appreciate all your input. I got it. Just, you know, we're not doing anything immoral, unethical, illegal. There's a lot of different decisions here, but I got to pick one and we're going with it. You know, and, and you have to find that, as you said, the art of leadership, because it is a balance, but we don't have an obligation to challenge. We almost have an obligation to comply. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, especially at our age, like our generation, you showed up and you shut up and you did what you were told. And if you didn't understand why, if you're lucky, someone will explain it to you at the end of your shift. Yes. If you're lucky. Yes. And, and thankfully, that's not our culture anymore. I, I, I think it's still there, but I don't think it's like it used to be. You've had some great leaders that I've been exposed to, you know, Colonel Anderson, like I told you from Metro, uh -huh. um, your current D platoon guys, I know, but one thing I stole from Mike Hillman hmm. and that uh, really helps me decipher these kind of deals is uh, the three things I need to know right now, the three things I need to do right now, and the three people that I can trust to delegate to. Hmm. And uh, his rule of three during chaos crisis, you just made me think of it when you were talking about these events and how you make decisions. And I like to say, you know, what do I need to know right now? What am I missing? 
You know, what mm-hmm. am I missing? Tell me what I'm missing. I don't want a bunch of people looking at me with their hands in their pockets going, this guy has no idea what he's talking about. <laughs> yeah. Like, well, if, if you don't think I know what I'm talking about, man, you better say something. <laughs> yeah, jump in. There's that yeah. obligation. Because either way, I'm going to be held responsible for what we do. <laughs> yes. Absolutely. We're in this thing together. Yeah. And, and now that we've made command control, we, we relied heavily on that command and control. I never even heard those two words strung together until I was on the sergeant list. And some sergeant pulled me aside and goes, well, it's about time you learned command and control. And it's like, this would have been good a few years ago, maybe. So I could have built this skill. Yeah, yeah. But it's like, you're now a sergeant and congratulations, you're now responsible for all these things. And there's no mechanism to train you and to ladder or scale or you know, scaffold your way into this position. Yeah. You, the next day you show up and you're like, you got it. And then to add to your problem in our profession, we're going to put you on graveyards right? weekends with the newest officers and no supervision so that you can be the highest ranking person available to make these Mm -hmm. critical decisions. Yeah. And fear not because we will judge you harshly on Monday. So you'll know. Yes. With, with (laughs) hindsight, and yeah. extra information, we are going to dissect the daylights out of you. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes I wonder that how we even survive. <laughs> it, it, there is, it, it, I hate to say it, but there are these moments where we are truly more lucky than we are good uh, a, a lot of times. But, oh, you know, yeah. our, our hubris gets in the way and we think we're so good. But whew, you, you look at some of the body worn and you think, man, it could have gone so many different ways. I don't know why, but lately I've been stuck on the fact that we look at that pre-event stuff and we inject more friction and chaos into our events than the suspect does almost 90% of the time. Wow. Like if you look at the things you're frustrated about, if you're listening right now, when you go to these calls, what are you frustrated about? Command, Mm -hmm. control, communication, all things we inject in ourselves. No one's like frustrated that the bad guy ran out, shot at him and ran back in. Like that's expected. Right. Yeah. They don't even get mad about it. They're just like, okay, well, we got to deal with it. They, what gives them stress is us. <laughs> it's yeah. our own, it's our own self-induced friction and chaos. Yeah. And, and, and that, and that from that lack of cohesion, the, the news articles from Washington Post to the times to wall street journal, all talk about policing and depolicing and, and how police officers are not motivated in the public, but you talk to cops, they will, well, in general, they will say, I'm more worried about internal complaints. The community and AI are fine. We have this relationship and, and we work it out. You know, you just, you kind of have to, it's kind of like a, it's like a family. You, these cops work in the patrol beat, but they're worried about internal what's going to happen. I've never had a cop say, well, I'm really worried about getting a complaint in the field as much as they are worried about the internal pressure that's coming down on them. Yeah. Agreed. Wholeheartedly agreed. Well, you've been working a little bit on AB 392 stuff and we, we did an earlier podcast where we uh, talked about a traditional SWAT hostage situation and the strict interpretation of AB 392 when it comes to necessary and when it comes to the, uh, the definition of uh, actively engaged in committing a felon- felonious assault, you know, or felonious uh, aggravated violent crime. And if you strictly interpret AB 392, our discussion was basically you have a traditional hostage, you verify they have a gun, there's a threat, there's present, there's hostile intent, present ability. And then what else do you, you you don't, that's all you needed. And so let's say you're negotiating, it's been an hour, 60 minutes, 90 minutes, it doesn't really matter. The person comes to the window, generally speaking, 
if you can resolve that situation, a sniper would take that shot. Mm. And our argument at Cato a little bit is maybe you can, maybe you can't. Depends on where you work. Yeah. Because if your DA strictly interprets AB 392, that hostage presently is not being attacked. Right. May not be free to go, right. but is not, not being attacked. There's not a commission of a violent crime in progress at that time. Yeah, And it's been very controversial and I've, I've been involved and listened to some pretty awesome arguments. And, and my opinion is basically, look, I don't, I don't have an answer yet. I just don't want it to be someone from my agency or my name on the case law that helps them write this law better. So you and I were talking a little bit earlier about AB 392 and de-escalation. And you work for a large agency on the West Coast and uh, what, what, what are some of the things that you're doing? Because I think as a profession, uh, at my agency, what we're struggling with is we can train that time and terrain distance thing. But like most cops, most around the country even, 90% of the time, they're doing the right thing until you read the police report. Mm. And they don't articulate any of the good stuff they did. Yeah. And it used to be cops wouldn't say they were afraid. They'd shoot somebody and they'd be like, well, I'm not afraid. Mm -hmm. well what do you mean you weren't afraid you weren't afraid for your life no i'm not afraid i'm like okay well look man like you you had to be afraid and and we've educated ourselves hey it's okay to say you're afraid because right you should be right yeah <laughs> if you're not afraid something's wrong with you but you got to say you're afraid you know you're afraid of yourself and fear of your partner the community whatever it is that led to that use of force now we have to go a step farther we need to go what did you do in my opinion, manipulate time and terrain to place the suspect at a disadvantage to, to gain compliance using the least amount of force possible. Yeah, hopefully yeah. not any, but we're not even training them to write that. And I don't know that answer, by the way, we're trying to figure that out. Right. Absolutely. And I've, I've, I've struggled with this a little bit because what I think was initially a good thing to tell officers to say it's okay to show some vulnerability. It's okay. You're not going to be judged. You're not going to be um, disparaged or ostracized like we do in policing. We've gone too far with this. And while I'll tell officers, if you feel you were afraid and you felt that heart rate, say it. But don't say it if you weren't because it's going to seem disingenuous. And so you've seen a lot of officers say, I was in fear for my life. And you see the video and you're like, boy, you do not look at all what was it uh sandra bland you know he, mm. he there was you're so coached in this he's like well in my experience these these felony people and he i was i was scared for my life and you're like come on now you're just saying it and you're making the righteous occurrences of use of force and whatnot you're belittling those by saying you were in fear you weren't in fear so don't just say it because it's a canned response because now we're crying wolf too many times so while I tell officers like you, you know, yes, if you feel this, it's okay. Now, if for whatever reason, your cognitive impairment narrowed your scope of perception and, and you didn't even sure. notice you were scared, don't just say it for the sake of saying it. Understand that you can still use force and even deadly force, even if for whatever reason in that moment, you didn't recognize the fear. And I think that's sure. our problem, Marcus. We, we tell, and this is what cops want. Tell me what to do. <laughs> Give Tell me, me one, what to do. When I, I need one solution. Yes. And do you want me to drop crime? I'm going to drop crime. And then they get out there and they get after it. And they do the traffic stops and they do investigate and they get after it. 
And then you see it in New York with the stop, question, frisk and what these good, these good routines. But then we as whether it's type A or you're not giving us other solutions or we're not modifying our tactics. You know, I, I, I've tried to use this analogy when crime is rising. It's sort of like when the plane is being is, is lifting off the ground. It takes different physics to get the lift and the power. But once the plane is up, you don't need that same type of physics. You don't need that same type of force to keep the plane going. So what I feel is when crime is going up, we do these things, but then we get crime to an acceptable level, but then we don't adjust. We oh, just yeah. keep hammering. And then we just keep hammering in comp stat. There's a and reaction like, gap. Yes. Yeah. And it's like, okay, well, we got crime down. Well, I need you to drop crime lower. It, eventually you're going to hit the point when you're going to get the rebound and the crime's not going to go any lower. Well, then what are we failing now? Because that's our only metric. Right. And we, again, we talked a little bit about this off air. And if we're going to be a profession, well, then we need to truly be professional and we need to critically think things. And we need to start saying, okay, we got crime at a certain level and historically, and now we're here, let's look at some quantitative analysis. If I have a community and that community is um, economically, socioeconomically challenged, and I tell them, hey, your robberies are down 11%. And they say, yeah, but you are in a, a military oppressive force in my community. I don't want you here. Are we successful? You know, and we, we need to start broadening what, what is successful police work. I would well. say Robert Peel would say, no, you're not. Like, exactly. Right. <laughs> Over a hundred years ago, you yeah. know, this person understood this, but what is it about our profession where we, we, oh gosh, it's like, you know, working out is good. So I'm going to work out four times a day. It's like, well, well, no, that's not as good. Yeah. Diminishing returns. Uh, I think you have a couple of things. One, it takes so much inertia to get the momentum of the organization, the community, the society to lower that crime rate, say, or solve a problem in a neighborhood. It could be a single officer problem. It could be a huge complex problem, your whole city or community or state or nation doesn't really matter. Yeah. But it takes so much bureaucracy inertia to get that, that, and it takes so long to get the results and then to measure the results that by the time you do that, you still got to slow the ship down, but it's a ship. It's not a car. So yeah. it doesn't, you don't just put the brakes on it. It's going to keep going and then throw in that during that process, you have, County supervisors, city council, chiefs, lieutenants, captains, all retiring and new people making their careers off solving this problem. So now they're solving a problem. They're successful. Uh -huh. And now you're telling them, stop doing what got you successful and do something different to make you successful. Yeah. And it doesn't matter what profession you're in. That's very hard to do. Yeah. So we're telling you, you fought against all these things against you to win. Now you've won. Now stop that. That's no longer winning. We're redefining it. And logically, we know that's true, right? Time changes. The things that our parents taught us to help us be whatever manner of success we might have, we can't teach those to our kids. Right. It's a different place. Yeah. Different time. And yet Absolutely. we don't apply that philosophy to our organizations. Yeah. We, we're very, we want to be a learning, innovative organization. But we have such a strict adherence to tradition. And I'm all for tradition. I'm proud of certain aspects. I love tradition from a national standpoint and from, you know, from policing. But 
my goodness, we can't just say, well, that's how we do it. Because then I hear that with my agency. Well, this is how we do it. Well, and when you, and when you adhere to that, you lose sight of the fact that, hey, Santa Rosa is doing good work. Bakersfield's doing some really good work. Uh, Riverside's doing some really good stuff. Uh, Bend, Oregon has got some incredible de-escalation stuff that they're teaching cops. We should, we should be open to that. But then that hubris comes in that like, well, no, 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 no. We're, we're the ones doing it. We're the ones. And we have to be open to the fact, well, well, you know, Elon Musk uh, doesn't care about tradition, right? He doesn't care. Yeah. He'll send a a $200,000 Tesla in space just to do it. We're just, I'm going to ship this thing off because I'm looking for innovation. And in the process of sending some silly Tesla towards the sun, he learned something along the way. Some code was written or something about satellite navigation. They learned something along the way. And because, so Marcus, this isn't, I'm curious what you think of this. We tend to really grab these high risk, low frequency events and make that our foundation. But the high frequency, low risk events, which in general is policing, we're not putting as much time into that. And do you notice that at all? Absolutely. There's not as much liability on it. So uh-huh. there's, there's two, two competing interest problems, right? So look at it like contingency planning. Mm-hmm. So what is my bad guy, my adversary most likely to do? Mm-hmm. And what is the worst thing they can do? Hmm. Because the worst thing they can do is absolutely probably the least less frequent thing that happens. Look at active shooters. Since Columbine, you can now lock down a school for the suspicion that someone nice. might have a gun. Now that ruler is not, you know, it kind of depends on where you work and what you know at the time. So it's not a hard, fast rule, but generally speaking, when in doubt, you lock a school down. Yeah. Now, how likely is it that this call is going to lead to an active shooter? It's not likely at all. Very low frequency event. Mm-hmm. But because of the risk is so great, we're willing to accept that. So hmm. like one of the things I know you're passionate about, and, and I agree with you, what kills us, right? We had a, we, in the nineties, we, no one wore seatbelts, right? Right. Then we, we started having to have all these campaigns because we're killing ourselves with vehicles. Yeah. So now we, we have much safer vehicles. I mean, a, an average police car now is worth about 70 to 80 grand by the time you outfit it yep. and you can survive crashes in some of the low, low, low models of any manufacturer that you couldn't have survived 10, 15 years ago. Right. Oh yeah. We're, yeah. We're not better drivers. No, we haven't. No, no, no better driving. The cars are better. Yeah. Cars are better. So yeah. And and no offense coppers, but you didn't get better driving either. (laughs) Yeah. uh, So, so then now what's killing us, right? We are, we're killing ourselves. Yes. And, And we're dying you know, our, our pensions are so good because we don't live to use them. Right. Like there's a reason why they're willing to pay us so much money for the rest of our lives, because there's a high percentage of us that never maximize that benefit. Yeah. And, you explain to cops the, the, when you start talking about, look, future liabilities from a city perspective are, are, are created through actuaries. These, you know, statisticians that look at this data and they, they do all this stuff and they realize, okay, a future liability is this person. So you're going to retire from your department, but you're going to live X number of years. And they have that carrot in front of you. 
because they know the more they could squeeze out of you, like with some agencies, we have drop, delayed mm-hmm. retirement. So, hey, hey, just stay a little longer. Here's a little bit more money. Yeah, they'll give you a little front money because then you're not going to live another 20 years. Right. Because you're burning yourself out. And you, you, you try yeah. to explain that to cops, like this idea of immediate gratification. Yeah, but gosh, that is our, that is, we are a group of people who love the immediate gratification. <laughs> In general, we do, right? And yeah. that's because uh, generally speaking, we're people of action. You don't sign yeah. up for this job to be a person of inaction. I know some yeah. of you think you work for those people, but at one point they were not those people. They were people of action. You don't, no one's attracted to law enforcement because they want to sit around. That's what firemen do. <laughs> Love you guys. Love you guys. And, and Mark, you, you may have had this experience for, for me and my agency Friday night, I was a training officer in one division. And then that, that deployment phase ended Sunday morning. I was a sergeant in another oh, division. Yeah. So, right. Yeah. So that's how it happened. So I had two uniforms. I, I had my training office uniform. I ended that shift. I had one day off. I was a sergeant on yeah. Friday. I was excited to get into a pursuit on Sunday. When I had to look at everything that I had to do, I thought, oh, I need to stop this from ever happening again. <laughs> I can't yeah. ever go in a pursuit yeah. anymore because you're saying all this liability now is going to be on me for my command and control. Why did you let the pursuit go on? And yeah. all of that, it was amazing how my view on pursuit and coppers would say, oh, yeah, you go to sergeant school where they take away your courage or they take or you mm-hmm. drink the Kool-Aid. And it's like, I didn't drink any Kool-Aid. I just realized the burden of liability just got dropped in my lap. So I have a, uh, a guy that's on my team and he, he listens to this podcast. So, uh, and I have a lot of, very knowledgeable guy, super smart, switched on tactical guy. Love this guy. And he was an officer when I was a sergeant on the team. So, you know, we've known each other his whole career, but now I'm the Lieutenant. Mm-hmm. And so we're going on a swap mission and I'm walking down the hallway and I go, Hey, here's the top three things I don't want to have happen. So framing the operation, this is what I want to have happen, but here's what I don't want to have happen. Right. And he kind of looks at me chuckling, just giving me a hard time. He goes, you worry about dumb shit. And I go, <laughs> I go, well, let me tell you something, man. There's two things I know. Dumb shit happens and I will be held responsible criminally and, and civilly for anything yes. that you guys do. But I have no control over what you do. So right. it's all about the pre-planning for me because after that, I'm support staff for you guys absolutely all i'm doing is support staff for you guys so yeah man i want to talk about this stuff because it's my freedom that we're playing with here too it's not just yours absolutely (laughs) started laughing he's like all right well that's you know that's a good point but it's uh, so true it's not it and that's our fault as a profession because we should be teaching our folks that from day one we want you to be a go-getter i still want you to be a go-getter but you gotta be you gotta be tactical about it you gotta be smarter you know, we don't just chase because someone's running, right? Mm-hmm. You got to ask yourself, why are they running? Why do they want me to chase them down this alley? Right. Why are they, why are they doing this? Yeah. Now, absolutely. I'd say a majority, at least in my town, and it's different. I, I'm in the North Bay, but I have friends in the Bay Area that work in communities that are way more dangerous than mine. Most of the time, the people I deal with, they're just trying to get away. But every once in a while, it's somebody who's not trying to get away. Yeah. Every once in a while, it's someone who's trying to manipulate you to put you in a position of disadvantage so he or someone else around can take advantage of you. Yeah. And it doesn't happen often, thankfully, where I live, but you can go go to Oakland, go to parts of LA where 
there's nobody friendly within blocks and blocks of where you are. Yeah. You yeah. Know, it's... So you, you got to think, you got to think smarter, but it is interesting because if you look at the history of conflict or warfare and situational awareness, you always go with the guy on the ground and yeah. you can go back is as recent as Afghanistan, Iraq, Vietnam, where we didn't listen to the guy on the ground and leadership made horrible decisions that cost people their lives mm-hmm. because they didn't listen to the guy on the ground. And yet we violate that policy when it comes to pursuits. And I'm not, I don't disagree with it, but the reason why we violate that policy is because we're fixing the wrong problem. We're having a sergeant from a desk tell someone that they know better than what's going on when they're not there they're not seeing it usually in LA you're a little bit different you guys are spoiled because you have air units up all the time but but generally speaking you're not seeing it you don't have the best situational awareness but we've screwed up pursuits so badly as a profession that the risk outweighs the reward so we violate the situational awareness policy because we fail to teach our people hey man this is the bigger picture because mm-hmm. if you train your people right you should never cancel a pursuit because they're already doing it mm-hmm. they're canceling yeah. their pursuit themselves yeah and the- and that's just a basic example but that example goes throughout our profession here's the one caveat i'm going to throw in marcus is that when these officers have that pursuit and whatever it is they run the plate or they see the crime so you have some physiological things happening to the coppers that the person say at the desk or, you know, in the airship, or if I'm the sergeant in the field and I got to catch up to that pursuit. So we know that when that heart rate starts beating and you get that fight, flight, freeze, or appease response, officers don't get all those four, even though the brain might be saying, this is bad. Let's say to freeze, don't do this. The, the copper doesn't have the, the benefit of doing what, what is natural. They're always going to go with the fight you know, they're just going to charge this way. So they're saying, this is bad, this is dangerous, but I'm overriding this. And all the blood that you need to keep that prefrontal cortex humming is now being put into your thighs and your back and your chest. And it's going to these muscles that aren't even being used behind the car. So you'll see the grip will get real tight if you watch, or you'll hear the voice change because there's a physiological thing happening. Imagine mm-hmm. like a Hulk coming out And yet you're not using any of those muscles just yet. You're driving this vehicle and you start looking at, you know, a car going 55 miles an hour is traveling at about 88 feet a second. So you get some copper going 70 miles an hour, traveling in excess of a hundred feet per second. And their prefrontal cortex is not firing. It's, it's, it's a missile. You got a missile whipping through a city at this point. And so sometimes you might need that person not immersed in that because then you get, you talked about this well, you get that inertia and then that inertia becomes contagious and everybody starts getting dialed into that because that heart rate's elevating. And then I'm going to transition with this and see if you like to go there, but you might need someone away from that. That's why our airship adds a very mellow, Hey guys, uh, you're going to be going excess speed here. Uh, You're coming up on an intersection with a lot of pets, you know, and it's real calm. Maybe we want to slow down. So don't run them over, you know, but and then on top of it, Marcus, think about how many of these guys and gals are now operating on three hours of sleep. And they're hurling this missile through civilians who have nothing to do with this. And, and their decision reaction time is, is compromised at a level they don't understand. 
yeah, you're in it. There's not a lot you can do to minimize that. It will never go away. Right. Uh, and that's why you see negotiators have another negotiator, right? That's why someone's even in your interview room watching your interview. And those are non, you're not doing 70. You're not being overwhelmed by your senses, looking for cross traffic, where you're at, where's your radio at, where's your partner at? Where's the next, am I going to get T-boned by the next unit coming in? Yeah. All those things going on in seconds. And uh, that's where I think force science has really helped us um, explain ourselves Mm -hmm. to ourselves and to the public. Hey, this is why two more shots were fired in this incident because this Mm -hmm. person's brain can't even stop the gun in the amount of time that you're expecting them to. And, and that's why this person was shot in the back twice because the officer didn't even see that they were turned. And by the time he says, stop shooting, there's milliseconds that go all the way to his hand and he's already shot two more times. And you have to explain that science. And I hope as science develops and with 1421, I think one thing that's great is we have a volume of research now mm-hmm. that we can show, hey, this is pretty much standard across the industry of a response time, you know, and it's mm-hmm. not uncommon to have this issue. And here's agencies throughout the state that had a very similar issue. And here's what it looked like and why video doesn't tell you everything. Right. It's a great demonstration of just throw that with explaining the physiological response and the time it takes. And, and hopefully over time, the public will start not acknowledging like, okay, because there is no perfect way to solve some of these problems. Mm-mm. They're just and, lesser of two evils. And we're doing a really good job of explaining things. We're doing a very bad job of building empathy. We're, we're empathizing with the community. We're empathizing with historical burdens and historical injustices of our profession and things that happened decades. I got, I got young officers on the job who don't even know OJ Simpson. Right. Yeah. They don't even know Rodney King. They're right. like, who, who is this? It, it, it is absolutely useless for them. But then I say, well, but you are going to serve and protect people who are familiar with this case. So you have to sort of juggle this this uh, this conflict of like a, a person who says, I have nothing to do with that. I have absolutely nothing to do with this. And I'm here for the right reasons, doing the right thing, you know, the right way. And I'm getting this feedback. So we as a, if we're going to be professional, well, then let's be professional all around. And let's start having campaigns where we bring community members in. And we explain these things. Maybe we need to start talking about this more. I've always thought, why do we teach kids in school how to pass a bill, which very few of them will ever do, but we don't teach them about civics in general and about the most visible form of government. I hear this all the time. Well, police are the most visible form of government. Well, then we should educate people early on in civics about the most visible form of government. What are our limitations with our powers? What are your obligations as a citizen to comply? You know, I tell citizens, I, I've done this before. I say, hey, so what are you up to? Where are you going? This And they'll say, do I have to answer this question? And I have to be honest and say, well, no, you, you, you're under no obligation. Sure. I'm just going to conduct this traffic stop. I was just trying to pass the time. I don't want to talk to you. Roger that. Like right. we, need, we need them to know. Look, look yeah. you don't have to answer this question. That's fine. But I think we should start educating more. And that's where we need to link. We need to think broader as a profession. We love the tactical 
aspect of it and showing people the science and, and the reaction times and, and cog audio exclusion and time dilation. We want to get into that, but I think we need to get a more basic level too and start teaching people. So we don't have these internet lawyers or these first amendment auditors. I wouldn't, I wouldn't disagree with you at all. We, as a society, we do a horrible job at that. And I might be a little jaded right now. I'm not sure I want our teachers doing it, to be honest with you. Depends on where you live. But yeah, I've had some great discussions with teachers because my daughters will come home and tell me some horrific stuff they've said about mm. the police or stuff that's wrong. And I'll go talk to them and just go, hey, look, man, uh, this is what my kid said. Did you say this? Well, yeah, I said that. And I go, okay, well, just so you know, the Constitution says this. Mm -hmm. Like, you can Google this. That's not a thing that happens. You know, and here's the checks and balances that are in place to ensure that doesn't happen. And here's, so while I understand you read a headline, if you read the, the facts of the case, that's not yeah. what's happening. And that's not unique to our profession. You can see it in the medical community all the time. They'll go, they'll go a direction and you'll be like, well, did you read the study? Right. Well, I read an abstract of the study. Yeah. Like, okay. Well, that's great. But the abstract is a summary. Yes. If, if we all live our life by reading summaries, it'll be like getting all your advice from YouTube. Ah, and, it's great. and while it's great and you get some superficial information, you're not going to have a deep understanding of anything involved. So you're not, you're not really going to get a mortgage by, by reading a, you know, doing a three minute video, you're, you're going to have to understand some things. And I, I agree with you. I, even this year for myself, I've never spent more time in my organization explaining how civil government works at a city level, mm -hmm. which is great because all these young coppers want to know, well, why is the city council affecting this? Or how's the relationship between the city council, the city manager and the chief? And, yes. And why isn't this and that? And I'm like, I think it's great because they learn it. And I can't remember how I learned it. Like, I, I don't, I don't remember a class. Right. Right. I, I think it was just osmosis, but like, yeah, the chief is a department head. In the, in the city's view, the chief is just another department head. He's the same as public service or public works. The same now, there's more liability involved for mm -hmm. sure. And generally speaking, police departments take the largest part of the budget, police and fire in a city, but he's still a department head. Absolutely. The only yeah. people that think the police are special are the police. <laughs> Everybody right. above them just thinks that they're another department. Department of Water and Power, right? Yeah, yeah Parks and Rec, and uh, that—that's not fun to hear, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, especially when this is the this is the entity in civic government that swears an oath. You know, like there there's something a little more profound. There's something a little bit more historical. There's something a little more grand when you 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 swear the oath. But but to that end, I think we're doing our officers a bit of a disservice too. We we swear the oath to protect the Constitution against all enemies, foreign and domestic. But then I tell my cops, okay, so the Constitution's important. Do me a favor, just tell me what Article One says. Just let's just go with Article One, establishment of the legislative branch. And the cops don't know it because they. But so right. we we as a profession, it's it's almost like we're we are deciding the rules and the way in which we're judging ourselves. And so honestly, Marcus, tell me if I'm wrong on this. I, I tell officers, you know, maybe we should just pause a little bit and wait and instead of saying, well, we're good cops, we do good police work because I got a gun off the street tonight. And I said, okay, fair enough. You got a gun off the street. 
So now your presence, it's good you got the gun off, but do you think in, in a big city like this, the, the gang said, well, shoot, we were going to do that drive-by, but now we don't have any, we don't have any guns now. And I think uh, there's probably a lot of guns floating around. So I want to I want to hold that thought with you and, and comment on it because I'm really curious what to say. And then number two, the idea of we we tend to define what success is, and I think we get a little bit siloed with that. You know, if a plumber went into your house and said, "Hey, I fixed your your sink," well, yeah, but my toilet's leaking. They're like, "Hey, no, 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 no. I'm a good plumber. I decide what's good. Your 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 sink is unclogged. I'm out." And the person's like, "But I want my toilet fixed." Are we doing too much of that? Are we telling the public I'm a good cop because I make the arrest? So I, I think to answer the first part of your question, great job getting the gun off the street uh-huh. and don't stop doing it okay. because we're all pushing a rock up a hill and, and yeah, another guy's going to take my spot and hopefully I made the path smoother for him. And just so you know, that rock's going to roll back down the hill multiple times during your career. So if you yeah. expected to get to the top, you're looking, you're, you're measuring the wrong hill, it's great. but, but at the same time, don't think that because you got a gun off the street, gun violence is going to stop, you know, and, and I think we as cops recognize that you can make all the gun laws as you want. You're not going to stop people from killing each other. And if you look around the world and this isn't a gun conversation as much as just a societal deal, you, you take away guns and they use cars, they use knives, they use car, they use blunt instruments. Like, Bad people will do bad things and we need to do something about it. Uh-huh. But to speak to your, to your second part, I think you're talking about going right back to Robert Peel. You're, you're going right back to policing should reflect the values of the society in which we live. And that's different for everybody. The things that yeah. you can do in Los Angeles County are different than the things I can do in Sonoma County. Yeah. And there's a, there's a level of fear in the LA city and LA County where people have a level of fear based upon the amount of violence that takes place that they're, they're willing and asking you mm-hmm. to do certain things that in parts of my community, they're, they're like, eh, we're not really afraid of that. We don't want you guys doing that. Mm-hmm. And it's a constant tug and pull of what does that look like? And I agree with you. Yeah. We we're the subject matter experts in executing what you want us to execute. As a matter of fact, in my little city, we, we, in my career, we're so good at organizing logistics, developing an end state, a ways and a means that we got pulled into, and not just here, but around the state, we got pulled into executing things that have nothing to do with law enforcement hmm. because we're so good at executing. Mm-hmm. And now you see that conversation, right? Because whenever society doesn't know what to do, we criminalize it. And then we send the cops in to deal with it until we can figure yeah. out what to do. Right. And then three, five, six years later, they're like, why are the cops beating up these people? That's not even a crime. And the cops are like, yeah, no kidding, man. Like, we didn't want this problem. You see this with yeah. homelessness, right? Homelessness is not a crime. And cops are like, no cops are arguing to be involved in enforcing homelessness. That never yes. happened. Agreed. No, no cop said, hey, I want you to empty out all the mental health hospitals in the state of California mm. so that they're on the street and we have to deal with them. Yeah, that, that wasn't a police. No chief was raising his hand going, hey, I, I want more money so I can deal with more mental health people. Exactly. But that was the tool given to us. And so we dealt with it for a while. And now the community is saying, hey, we got to do something different. Mm-hmm. I, I've yet to meet a police officer in the state of California or anywhere else that's like, no, no, we want this problem. Like, uh, no, man, this isn't our problem. Agreed. We're, 
we're a hammer, you know, and that's not a nail. Yeah. That's that's a community issue. You may have known there's a a very prominent officer who works on Skid Row in Los Angeles, uh, Dion Joseph. He's often called the angel of Skid Row. And he has a beautiful quote, which is policing is the dumping ground for failed public policies. Yeah. And we're going to put all these policies out. All these policies failed. And that now it's pushed on the officers. And, you know, we, oh my gosh, that whole, you know, people experiencing homelessness. And then it's, well, there's homeless. Then there's the unhoused. And then it's unaffordable housing. And you hear this like LA has no unaffordable housing. Well, guess what? Cops don't live in LA either. They right. live where you can afford. <laughs> right, that's it. Right. We have people who work for the city who live 60 miles away. Or because more. That's, yeah. Or more because yeah. that's what they can afford. And so this isn't necessarily, you know, it's not like we have uh, Google engineers and Amazon drivers and people working in the service industry that say, why, gosh, I have a daily job. I just can't afford to live here. So I'm going to live on the street. Like it's such a bigger issue. And you have somebody who's walked a footbeat for 25 years and has seen this and says, we have addiction and mental health and is a perpetuating cycle. And until you say we are going to help people break the addiction, And it's not like you give someone a pat on the back to break an addiction. It's going to take serious intervention. And when I tell people this and try to explain it, I say, do me a favor, just put your phone and put it away and don't touch it the rest of the day and feel how that feels. (laughs) You know, I tell my cops, it's like, look, we're going to go on break. Everyone keep your phone at your desk and don't look at it the rest of the day. And they're going to get, they're going to get the shakes because they're addicted to the phone. Don't have sugar for two days. Like right now, stop right now. Nothing you can have sugar and watch how your body reacts. Now imagine that addiction 10 times greater and you've been doing it for 10 years and it's, it's in your body. Like have some empathy for people as well. And I understand it's a long road. We, we tend to look at the person at the end result of their actions, but there's a lot of little nudges that happen along the way to get somebody to that point. And if you could remain a little human, a little emp- emp- empathic, I suppose, you might be able to help solve this problem, but we see the end result and we see the homelessness. And now all of a sudden we're enforcing uh, sleeping on the sidewalk laws quietly. You know, it's nice and quiet. Hey, get back out there and start doing this. Watch something will happen. It's, it's inevitable. Someone is suffering from a mental health crisis is going to have a violent encounter with us. And there's going to be a deadly force incident. And it's the pendulum's going to swing back because everyone's failing to frame this problem. Yeah, you're right. And, and then in the middle of that, you're going to have uh, people who are politicians in not just law enforcement, but in all these other organizations that are going to sell their quick fix mm-hmm. to get ahead or to make money. And uh, unfortunately, our, our, um, our system is set up poorly for that. You know, it's like, uh, it's like infrastructure. Nobody runs... I don't think since Roosevelt, anybody has run for president on an infrastructure bill, Mm. you know, and that's because they take so long that no one gets reelected for what they've accomplished because they can't accomplish them during their election cycles. And that's the same point. That's the same in civil government at the city level. Mm -hmm. You know, these problems take decades to fix and no one will be here when they're done. Yeah. and in, in law enforcement, point. it's the same problem, right? We all, we, we get to retire at 50, 60, maybe, you know, you've got some commanders, deputy chiefs that are in their sixties, mm-hmm. um, but they're not doing that for the money. 
they're they're doing it for the love of where they're at and what they want to do but so so then you got to start another whole generation and do this whole thing all over again yes do you see a, a place where you know how some countries have mandatory military service. Do you see a place where if you're going to be in charge of a police agency, say you're going to be a police commissioner or you're going to be in the Department of Public Safety, you shall go through the police academy and you will be a reserve officer so that you have a better understanding. Is that necessary? Would it help? Oh, you mean as a community standpoint? So yeah, every member of the community goes through some level of service so that might be hard as a community, but let's just say people above us. So like the LAPD, oh, okay. we have a chief, but we have a civilian oversight board. Right. Right. Yeah. So if you're going to be a member of a civilian oversight board that oversees every police action policy procedure, you will go through the academy. It's just part of your hiring process and you will be a reserve officer. So every, I don't care if you just show up at the station and work the desk, but part of your duty overseeing this is you will go through this process. I, I would agree a version of that because otherwise what makes you a subject matter expert? While I'll yeah. agree, you know, go back to Robert Peel. I absolutely agree. The community, we should be as transparent as possible to the people that sure. we work for. Sure. And the community should have a say in what that policing is. Yeah. Um, at the same time, it's naive to think that the majority of the community will be involved because they don't. Americans right. historically are lazy voters. Mm. Yeah. They're they're they vote on the name or the smile. They don't look at that stuff, right? And so when we're going to have people come into a life or death business, which is our business, we deal with life or death problems. Yep. And you're going to impact policies and make decisions, and you should have the requisite education on what that looks like. Yeah. And not just because of your skin color or your name or your political affiliation, but also because, hey, I, I get what we're doing. And generally speaking, and we, we saw this back when force simulators first came out, some of our biggest detractors would go and use a force simulator and they killed everybody all the time, yes, right? And the honest ones would come out and admit it. They'd be like, wow, man, like I had no idea. The yes. honest ones would come out and admit it. And we've done ourselves a disservice going back to your original point of, being our own subject matter experts and yeah and that doesn't help us and we saw that and we're still seeing that as we struggle with protest response right the majority of people that we mm. work for do not understand protest response mm-hmm. and going back to some of my mentors in life who are now in their 70s and worked in la county and handled these protest response they would offer the board of supervisors or the city council to come out to these protests Come to the protest. We'll keep you safe. We want you to see what it's really like. Yep. Guess how many times those people took that offer? Never. Yeah. And, and if they did, they would be like, oh, okay. So it's different than what I saw on TV. Yeah. At least now we have body-worn camera and it's not just one point of view from a, a newscast or, or you know somebody like that. But even yeah. that, we all know body-worn camera doesn't really capture everything that's going on. We, yeah. as a society, we acknowledge energy, right? But absolutely. Until we watch a video of someone use force, and then we're like, well, that, that doesn't mean anything. And, <laughs> but every cop I've ever met knows when he shows up to work on a Friday night graveyard shift, he can tell. He gets out, you can feel it. Mm-hmm. I remember being in college and working in LA, you could feel it. 
you'd go mm-hmm. out at night and you'd be like, those boards are going to be busy tonight. Yes. Right. Or 100%. Mm, didn't feel, feels okay tonight. Yeah. I mean, it won't be, but generally speaking, if you can feel it, there's some stuff going on somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> the, absolutely. The radio calls, the chatter, the level, the volume, mm-hmm. the way the people are. And, and was it Rand Corporation? I think did a big study on LA. Mm-hmm. And talked about the pulses and the rhythms that cities have. They're living, breathing organisms. Yes, and absolutely. Those, it's the same. So it, it's very interesting. I, I agree with you. Um, at minimum, let's require the civilian oversight folks to have some level of, of training and education on what they're given input for. Well, and, and this is, oh, go please. That for us, we don't have the LA model. And uh, quite honestly, I don't want it. But um, yeah. I want input from I want the I want the generally speaking the community to know what we do, and we have so many checks and balances that where I work I feel we do a fairly decent job of managing our folks, and when we make mistakes we deal with them, and we mm-hmm. identify training issues or discipline issues, and and we're pretty open about them. But we've done a poor job of educating the community about why and how. And, yeah. And, what these are and we've allowed tv to set unrealistic expectations and and video games to set like well i, I know how this works well how do you know how yeah. this well, i watch it on tv it's kind of thank god for the diy network so i love the diy network i don't watch it anymore because it just makes projects for me but <laughs> before that policing was the ultimate i know how to do your job because i watch cops all the time right no one right. no one watches surgeries and goes i know how to do surgeries now True. but diy everybody watches those diy shows and they're like i can remodel my whole my whole house in 45 minutes with a couple of commercials and they go out and try <laughs> this stuff that they learn on youtube and the diy channel and they realize it's a lot harder than it looks yes and and so for me i like that because if i try to explain something to somebody i'm like hey well, you know maybe you can change your water heater out with no plumbing experience. Cause you can watch a video and it's pretty, pretty simple deal. Yes. Could you plumb your whole house? <laughs> no. You know, do you understand why you need the vents that you have and where they need to be in order to make your water work? Right. Like exactly. I don't exactly, I don't have any training in that. Exactly. So uh, it, it's interesting. That's why I like the DIY deal, but I heard cops was back by the way. Yeah. Certain, certain uh, networks are allowing it to run well i'll be happy when i see lego put the police officer back into their rotation you know the little lego pieces are not allowed and if there were that was a terrible uh example of an overreaction to something i I heard paw patrols back so we're we're making progress so tom you've you've got an interesting mentor i know that you have talked to uh kansas city uh, commander chip youth the author of The Power of Unconditional Respect. And he talks a lot about nobility of our profession and, and kind of the big picture things, the importance of our oath. Tell me a little bit about how you think that applies to morale and the things that our profession's facing. I asked Chip something that I, I'd like to just share. And I said, so what do we do? I met him over the summer and and, and morale and whatnot. And I said, Chip, what do I tell these cops who are just battling between wanting to do the right thing, but not feeling community support, not feeling political support? And he said, remind them that the oath has no escape clause. 
So here you and I are talking about this and the political and we're doing a bad job and it almost feels like a little negative. And so Chip and I went back and forth on this and I, I tried to now remind my officers, the nobility of this profession is found in the hardship of the profession. So in these moments when it feels like you know, p- political will is, is kind of against us and a lack of empathy for us. Like that is when you, the officer, like says, I'm ready. You know, that is when you say no more. You know what? I'm carrying this burden. Put a little more weight on me because I know that my muscles are only going to get stronger. And that's what makes you noble. I, I don't know anyone who joined this profession and said to themselves, the one thing I'm looking for is a nice, easy gig. Because then, Marcus, we know they would have been firefighters, right? <laughs> yeah, they totally would have been. <laughs> right? They would have gone that route. But they said, <laughs> I want to do something significant. I want to do something exciting. Roger that. But, you know, early on in your career, you get the feel of what this profession is. And you know the ups and the downs. And the four-minute pursuit is a six-hour report. And the one mistake you did turns into a complaint. And yet you stayed with it. So I think the nobility in this profession is found in the hardship. And remember, you're able to withstand that hardship. You know, you have the structure, you have the bone structure, the mental fortitude and the emotional stability to carry us through this time, because we have to save this profession and make sure others want to join it. And as hard as that is sometimes to remember, like, oh, things suck right now or get out of here, kid, you don't want to be in this profession, go do something else. I say we have to almost say, no, no, come on, come join us. This is, this is a noble struggle, and we need to keep this thing going for future generations. There's a, there's a 12-year-old who wants to be a police officer right now, and I don't want to dissuade them. I want to encourage them to be a part of something much bigger than they, than they, than they are right now. Even if they show up at the firehouse wearing a fire shirt and their mom's trying to show them the rigs, you just walk right out there and go, let me show you where it's really about. (laughs) Exactly. So uh, I agree with you. And one of my mentors in life, uh, actually, I'm going to have dinner with tonight, as a matter of fact, coming up here from uh, L.A. Nice. And he he one of his keys to success, he said, is don't be afraid to talk about the big picture things. Mm. We don't talk enough about big picture things to our people. What you do matters every single day. Yeah. It, it matters in ways you may not know. Now, if you're old, like for me, I'm in the last year or so of my career and wow. I, I work in a fairly small community and I've got the pleasure every once in a while of seeing somebody that I helped Yeah. five, 10 years later. Right. Yeah. And it doesn't happen often, but it does. And mm-hmm. when it does, you're like, Hey man, that little thing I did, I had no idea mm-hmm. how that, how that helped. And yes. if you're thinking right now, you picture somebody, no one thanks you for taking them to jail, right? Right. But it's their, it's their road to path after it's their road to pick after that. Is it just going to be one trip to jail and their only trip, or is this going to be one of many? And you'll run into them where they're like, Hey man, I didn't like that. You took me to jail, but I never went back. I got my life yeah. together or, or whatever version uh, that that might be. Yeah. One of your, uh, going back to morale. I mean, what do you think about this? Another, another Colonel Anderson, Sergeant Anderson to you, uh, calls me up during the riots and he says, Hey man, uh, actually it was during the fires we had, he goes, Hey man, how's your, how's morale? Mm-hmm. I go, oh, it's pretty, it's pretty low. It's pretty low right now. Sure. And, uh, I totally remember what we were doing. I was on the side of a hill. I had a uh, big fire map out. Wow. And uh, 
and I was organizing searching for bodies after wow. this fire went through our town. Probably had, uh, I don't know, 30 search and rescue dogs, field evidence technicians, probably 50 cops, all grid searching this yeah. track of homes that was leveled in 20 minutes, looking for bodies and parts and stuff. And, he, and my this is after a month of evacuating, repopulating, evacuating, repopulating, just mm. mess. This is the first time my group of folks I was in charge of had like normal duties, pulling security, basic stuff. And they're fighting. Yeah. They're fighting with each other. They're fighting with oh, the public. Wow. And uh, my phone rings. I see it's the colonel. I answer. And he goes, how you doing, kid? I go, well, doing okay. He goes, let me guess. This is, I didn't tell him anything other than that. He goes, let me guess what's happening. Your guys are turning on each other. They're mm-hmm. pulling security. They're uh, in the evac zones. You got them doing what they think is stupid jobs that don't mean anything. Right. And they're fighting. And I, I literally put the phone down. I looked around. I'm like, where is he? And uh, <laughs> sure. he goes, totally normal. He goes, you just asked these, these folks to perform heroic tasks for days on end. Stuff they've never mentally been prepared for in their life. And they all did it. And now you've asked them to stop full speed, full speed ahead, stop and do what they feel are tasks that are demeaning to them now. Yeah. And he goes, that's because in law enforcement, we don't transition our people. You talk to people in like the special forces and they'll spin down for a week or two weeks after an operation and months before the operation. And every time we talk, we laugh at each other because they're like, and you guys go to like swa- soccer practice. Like, we don't understand. Like, no wonder you guys are all fucked up. Like yes. you, you, you do a SWAT hit, you get in a shooting, you get the debrief, and then you go to soccer practice and you pretend everything's okay. Yeah. Like we, we at least so fight true. amongst each other for a couple of weeks and then we go home. And, right. Uh, but he says, he goes, Hey, you're worried about morale, right? I go, yeah. He goes, take care of your people, keep them together, let them get through it. They'll be fine. But you said the second thing you're going to want to do, and this happens in law enforcement more than the military, you're going to want to relax on your discipline. You're going to want to not sweat people for their uniform not looking good or not shaving or whatever policy at the time people are fired up about, tattoos, beards, uniforms, colors of your T-shirt, whatever it might be. And he goes, that's the worst thing you can do. Yeah. He goes, you're going to intuitively try to relax on people because you're trying to keep them happy. Because they Uh just did an amazing thing. He goes, but you're going to kill their morale. And so I go, okay, well, what do you mean? He goes, think about it like you're running. So you're going to go run three miles, say, and you're not a runner. Okay. What's your goal when you go to run three miles? I go, well, I got to be honest with you, Colonel. I don't run too much anymore. So it's just finishing. I just don't stop. And he goes, exactly. Don't stop. So let me ask you something. He said, when you run, you run your three miles, say, and you're done and you don't stop. And, or maybe your goal is an eight minute mile, a six minute mile, 11 minute mile, whatever it is. And you don't stop when you're done. Are you proud of yourself? And I go, yeah, yeah. Like I accomplished my goal, whatever that might be. And he goes, let me ask you when you stop and walk for a minute once, or maybe twice, or maybe three times when you're done, do you hold that run in the same value that you did when you didn't? And I go, no. And he goes, well, what do you think you're doing for your people? They're not going to thank you. But when you hold the discipline, you hold that nobility, when you're mm. done at the end of this thing, they will be stronger and prouder for how they held themselves. Wow. And he goes, that's the problem with society right now is that we're, we give each other breaks all the time. Jeez. Look at the great generation. 
they're called the greatest generation because they didn't give each other any breaks and they still wow. don't. If you ever try to evac one of those old vets, they're, they're, they're not that helpful. What a garden hose in their hand. Yeah. They're, they're like, God wants me. He's coming to get me, get out of here. Right. <laughs> but yes. I remember that. Cause I thought counterintuitively, yeah, you're right. Like that it's human nature to, what can I do to make this easier on you? Cause I know this is hard instead wow. of going, I believe in you. I know you can handle this. Get your shit together. We're going to get through this. And if you talk to the old veterans in your agency or mine, or the guys that are retired in their seventies, they've been through this piece of law enforcement that are in right now, the, the redefining yeah. of policing. They've been through this a few times. They did it in the sixties, you know, wow. they did it in the late sixties, early seventies. They did it during Rodney King and we're doing it now. It's just the community redefining our social contract. But it's That's choppy. It. It's choppy while we do it. It's messy. God, it's so interesting. And, and it's profound that you say this because, man, maybe I, I'm learning something right now in, in real time. I was, you know, relaxing a little bit on that stuff. And it's like, oh, you got enough to worry about. Like, I'm not going to sweat you if we make you wear a mask all day. Like, if you're not shaving, I, I don't care. But, you know, you're, 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 God, you're saying things that are challenging, you know, and I needed to hear that. Something to think I, about. I don't, I don't have yeah. all the answers, but I, I haven't noticed the colonel would be too wrong about leadership. No, no, he no doubt. me wrong too many times. I agree. And, and I think that's part of what we need to do as a profession is sometimes got to pause and say, Hey man, there's a better way. And it's okay. You know, it's okay that I'm learning a lesson right now that says, maybe I'm, maybe I'm, I inadvertently allowed them to walk a little bit when, and, if I had to push them a little. Well, and the art's picking when that is, right? What's yeah. important and what's not, right? right. We, we've all suffered under the leadership of someone who thought certain things were important that were clearly not, you know? Yeah. We've all worked for the emperor who had new clothes, you know? <laughs> oh, jeepers. Right? We've all worked yes. for that person. And you're like, I don't, I don't understand what universe this person's working in. And wow. So I always wonder if I'm that guy, right? If I'm looking around and I don't see Mr. Magoo, am I Mr. Magoo? Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> like, oh, Cause you gotta fair. have one. Yes. <laughs> yeah. It's really good, Marcus. It's great stuff, man. What yeah, are the thoughts you have? Buddy? I know we're running down. out of, I know we're running out of time. I'm sure you got a long list of stuff. Well, to do today. I, I, you know what, if I could impress upon some of the people and you know, this is always a passion of mine is don't neglect that sleep component even if you get 20 more minutes of rest and whatever that is for you for that intervention, don't have your phone in bed with you right when you go to sleep. Or if this is the one thing I've done a fair amount of research on and cops are overrepresented on a host of negative outcomes, but the two I'll focus on is mortality and morbidity. We die sooner than general population and we have a, a presence of disease at a higher rate. So whether it's cancer, Alzheimer's, diabetes, heart disease, insomnia, whatever it might be, cognitive impairment. And one thing I know is that the less you sleep in your life, that also is strongly associated, correlated, and in some instances, cause causes of these other diseases that are afflicting us. And you have so much going on in your life. And it is counterintuitive for us as people who lean in and press on. And like I said, carry the nobility, but there is a limit to human performance and you have to ensure because eventually you're going to put this nobility brick down and you're going to enjoy the rest of your life. And you want to make sure you enjoy those years as long as possible. 
So if, if I could encourage one thing with our young officers or, or even our senior officers, remember the airline industry, the rail car industry, the trucking industry, the medical community, even the military, uh, the trucking shipping industry, they have sleep requirements for a reason. We don't. We completely neglect and we idle and we burn our people out. And if you're in a position of authority, recognize when your coppers are sleep deprived and try to mitigate that. Why? Well, again, with the firefighters, they could nap. Well, no, no firefighter staying awake 24 hours a day. Nobody would want that. I wouldn't want a firefighter showing up in 22 hours of wakefulness to have to make these decisions, but we never question it with cops. We need yeah. to redefine it. Start looking at policies. Give your, give your people tactical rest or strategic rest. If it's slow and you know a copper is only working on three hours sleep, allow them to get a nap in. You know, start looking at changing the game a little bit because that sleep is such a critical component to your cognitive function. I, I, I think we'd seen improvement. There's so much science behind that. And we probably should do another episode just on that because we're dying. We're either committing suicide uh, or we're dying at a young age from organ failure. Yes. Which is directly correlated to the amount of sleep and how you manage your stress. And 100%. as a profession, we're kind of putting band-aids on it by talking about it but we're not changing the structure of our profession with staffing yes. and building in these times to actually help people. Instead, we're just trying to fix them at the end. And, Absolutely. And there's no fixing organ damage. You, no, you, it doesn't. There's very few organs in your body that will actually regenerate themselves. I want to say there's like two, the yeah. rest you get damaged. You're that's the damage you're living with the rest of your life. And the plaque you're building up on your brain, the adenosine buildup, when people say they can get caught up on sleep, and I tell them there's no such thing, because that little piece of adenosine is now lodged in your brain. That's it. It's gone. It, it wasn't able to be wiped clean when it was more malleable, and it's hardened, and so now it's going to be harder. And just like, you know, you can't go to the dentist, and, and you could get that plaque off your teeth. You can't do it in your brain. I'd love to do an episode. Uh, this way, we'd understand. Let's do it the difference between REM and NREM sleep and why it's important for officers to process these things. I think they find it very valuable. Hey, I hope you enjoyed the show. I know it was a little bit different than our normal podcast. I wanted uh, Tom, who has a wide variety of experiences in education, to just kind of speak from the heart and uh, not really focus on just one topic. In the future, I've asked him to join us to talk about sleep deprivation and how it affects uh, law enforcement because he did his postgraduate work on that. And to see more about what Tom's doing, please check out Policing in America podcast. He's got a lot of uncomfortable conversations about race and policing, as well as uh, some of the challenges that our profession's having right now. Talk to uh, Officer Dion Joseph's open letter to LeBron James. He talked about the neuroscience at play in Derek Chauvin's mind during the George Floyd's death. Talks about uh, accountability in policing, redefining loyalty, implicit bias in policing with some of uh, the nation's top experts. 